as much as a city is made by people, it's made by the buildings and businesses that come and go as well. And I think I'm a realist in that, you know, you can't advocate for every single building to stay where it is. You know, you have to pick and choose. There's a balance of things in preservation and new buildings, and that's kind of how it always has been. Welcome to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. I'm Edward Krigsman. Last time we traveled across time on skis, thanks to Lowell Skoog, who shared stories from his recently published history of backcountry ski mountaineering. And what you may have most enjoyed about that conversation was that Lowell is both an observer and a participant. His carefully researched chronicle, including many firsthand interviews with old timers, became more compelling as Lowell revealed his own experiences as a lifelong skier, illuminating the North Cascades as a place of camaraderie, loss, and ultimately transcendence. Like Lowell, today's guest gathers bygone artifacts, often old photos, and curates them in ways that provoke surprise and delight, with a spotlight on our region's mid-century buildings and monuments. But he's more than that. He's a photographer in his own right, an author, book publisher, record company owner, illustrator, and graphic designer. And best of all, if you want to talk with him, it's as easy as dropping by his Porchlight Coffee and Records on Seattle's Capitol Hill. There you can chat with him across the espresso counter and then peruse or purchase some of his varied merchandise, nearly all created and produced in Washington State. So today we'll explore the choices that go into creating a purposeful and expansive livelihood, one that crosses traditional disciplines and will survey the Pacific Northwest over the last 75 years, often through the eyes of casual, unknown observers, thanks to our guest discovery and curation of lost and discarded photographs. And finally, we'll learn how developing a small business centered in our evolving city can anchor all of us to place, offering beauty, quiet, and clarity, even during periods of discomfort and disruption. And stick around at the end of today's episode, you'll learn about our guest's upcoming publication, a volume that reveals an overlooked trove of mid-century photography, work that will bring attention to an underappreciated Seattle artist who has yet to enjoy the national prominence that his work is worthy of. So let's welcome our guest today, Zach Bulletin. Hey, Zach. Hi, thanks for having me. So great to have you here. So let's begin by sharing a little bit about the story of how your family got here. So my dad's side of the family is from Russia, and my great-grandfather and my grandfather moved from Russia to the Central District. And my grandfather was a machinist for his whole life. So he worked actually doing repairs at the Seattle World's Fair in the 60s. And his dad opened a pawn shop downtown in the 40s, I think. Then my mom's side of the family, her parents met in California, moved to Seattle um, to start a family. So she was born in West Seattle. And then when my parents met, they both actually worked in publishing and had journalism degrees from University of Washington and then moved to the east side in Woodenville, kind of back when it was still mostly farmland and 
So I grew up there, and then when I graduated high school, I moved to the Central District, like five blocks coincidentally from where my grandfather grew up. And yeah, I've never lived outside of King County. Until your parents were writers. Yeah, my parents co-wrote a couple books on the Chicago World's Fair. And they've done books for university presses, and one of them popped up in my scholastic book order as a kid. So you were surrounded by books? Surrounded by books, um, surrounded by old things. Uh, My dad and I are very similar in that his sort of historical collecting rubbed off on me, not in the exact same way where I don't have the same interest in late 1800s World's Fairs, but his interest in like the Seattle World's Fair really rubbed off on me. And what was the weirdest old thing that you grew up with? Well, one thing that I actually wound up coveting and kind of telling my dad that whenever he didn't have room for it or wanted to get rid of it, I would love to have it. And it's a spaceship uh, bubblegum machine from the Seattle World's Fair. So it's like a six foot tall rocket ship which I now have in my kitchen. So Porchlight Coffee and Records is located on Capitol Hill, very close to the CD. Yeah. Tell us about the vision that went into creating the cafe. Um, Yeah, so I mean, I opened the cafe when I was super young. I was 22 and had essentially... Finished high school, went to Seattle Central thinking I was going to transfer with my associates. And by the time I finished my associates, I'd figure out what line of work I wanted to actually be in for a career. Um, But realistically, I kind of took a mix of American literature, other literature classes combined with kind of hokey ones such as history of rock and roll, which I just kind of took as a as an easy pass. But by the time I finished my associates, I still didn't know what I wanted to do and I didn't want to waste money transferring just to get a bachelor's in something that had no real real meaning to what I was going to wind up doing. So I had worked in the service industry, like coffee shops, restaurants, uh, interned at a record label at the same time. And then after few years, I kind of had this dream of trying to open a coffee shop and figured out how to do it essentially for the cost of a used car. And so I started the shop in 2009, which, you know, that was recession and wound up doing things like Instead of having, you know, nice countertops in the shop, I was on Craigslist and found a copy shop in Everett that was selling kind of laminate-topped, like, essentially office counters. And I bought them for 200 bucks, painted them, pushed them together at an angle, and it made a coffee bar. I bought the espresso machine from my cousin who had a stand inside of a hospital where I worked when I was 15. I didn't have an ice machine. I went to 7-Eleven every morning and bought used furniture and Ikea furniture. So realistically, like I just recently went through photos and saw some old ones. 
And I was like, yeah, that looks like a, about the equivalent of a used car. Um, and then slowly over the years kind of upgraded things when there was actual money. And, but yeah, I just worked for over a year straight without a day off until I could afford to hire someone, until I could afford an ice machine. And so what was it that you believed in that would cause you to go through such a risky endeavor of setting this up? Well, it's a combination. I think when you're in your 20s, you have uh, some misplaced confidence maybe. Um, And I just felt like I had worked in enough cafes and was kind of hardworking enough that I could make it work. And through that and a combination of just a bunch of luck over the years it actually worked out how I planned and then like morphed and grew as I got older and became more of a real business as opposed to a hobbled together one so I mean luckily the coffee roaster that we used and still use which is Herkimer up on Finney Ridge they were incredible and still are with you know, whether it's coffee questions, business questions, um, but a lot of it was just reading a lot. And yeah, I hadn't, I've never taken a business class, accounting class, and kind of just had to figure it out and did. So Porchlight is no longer merely a cafe, it's many different things. Can you kind of roll the carpet out? Yeah, so when the shop first opened, it was primarily a coffee shop, and we had like 100 records for sale, new and used records, which was kind of at the beginning of the resurgence of vinyl. And at the time, I was putting together some not great design work for the shop just out of necessity because I couldn't afford a designer, I couldn't afford an employee to work in the coffee shop either. So had you had any design training? No. Um, I had, you know, like a lot of kids, I drew a lot as a kid and then I played in punk bands. So it was always like the DIY mentality of, um, again, kind of the same thing where you can't afford to do this other than doing it yourself. So you learn to do it yourself. So I had like designed pretty bad concert posters and things like that learned to use a bootlegged version of Photoshop um, in the early days, and then it just kind of progressed. So when I started doing more design work for the shop and got eventually got better at it, other businesses and people would start asking me to design for them, which then kind of led to more design-focused stuff at Porchlight which then led to kind of creating an offshoot for just that, which is Porchlight Design Co., which is online retail and custom work for clients and things like that. So there's the design arm of it. And also in that time, bands that I was friends with were kind of wanting to put out vinyl. And at that time, I could finally kind of afford more things. And yeah, started doing a vinyl record label, which is Porchlight Records. Um, So yeah, there's Porchlight Coffee and Records, which is like the shop. And then the Porchlight Records part of it is the label. And then Porchlight Design Co. is the design-focused stuff. And it's 
pieces of it are all in the physical space and on the internet. So what bands are represented by Porchlight Records? We've done records with Tomo Nakayama, who is a Seattle guy. And Tomo is our theme music, by the way, for Power of Place. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so the first record we did was his old band called Grand Hallway, which was kind of more string music, pop, folk combination. And now Tomo does really great essentially electronic-focused pop. And so we've done records for him and his old band. We did um, the first piece of vinyl for a guy named Keaton Henson, who coincidentally, not because of the label, got really, really successful in England. He's British after that. And then a record for another Seattle band called Cataldo, which we put out um, in the last couple of years. But we've done about... A dozen releases or so. So Porchlight then has also morphed into an art gallery? Since day one, we've shown art on the walls at Porchlight with kind of the deliberate intention of not showing quote-unquote coffee shop art, which is, you know, I think most of us associate with being not great. And so in the early days, a friend of mine was kind of helping curate a little bit, and she would show kind of all sorts of different things, paintings, prints. Then later I would just do it myself and show some local people, some out of town, And then the last probably seven years or so, I got kind of more deliberate in going outside of the city to just really find a lot of prints by artists that I really liked. So I would write them and say, hey, I would love to buy prints from you to put on the walls to resell. Um, So it kind of helped the artist and then The risk is then on me to hopefully at least make the money back. But really, it's just to get good art on the walls from, you know, all over the country, outside of the country in a way that makes art affordable for a lot of people and shows kind of a rotating selection. So there must be like... I don't know, 1,500 cafes in the city of Seattle? Yeah, is that probably. <laughs> why do people come to Porchlight? I think, you know, with most businesses, especially service-based businesses in, in Seattle, there are so many options that it primarily comes down to a, making a space that people want to be in. And, you know, that doesn't mean make a space that people want to be in and then bait and switch them and give them something to drink that sucks. You know, it's like have the space be the most inviting part and then also offer something that people want. Um, and, you know, with coffee, there's so much good coffee in the city that for anyone trying to claim that they're the best or they have the best coffee, it's kind of 
pretty easy to poo-poo that, and I would never make that claim either. But I think as a space and as far as the combination of art, coffee, records, and just community space, I think that's kind of why people come. So let's talk a little bit about Porchlight as kind of in the center of Capitol Hill, the Pike Pine area. For listeners that may not be familiar with what's Capitol Hill, you know, why are you there? So when I was first looking for a space, you know, it was mostly a a price-driven search where I was like, you know, back in 2009, trying to find something for a couple thousand dollars was still possible to have that be your monthly rent at a commercial space, whereas now those days are beyond gone. Um, But, you know, I found this place on 14th, which is kind of the edge of the main Pine Pike corridor, being on 14th between Pine and Pike. And it was was a little more than I wanted to commit to, but the space was great. And my neighbors at the time were the Artificial Limb Company, um, an appliance repair shop, a vacuum repair shop, and a sort of gift shop. And then the one other like food service place was Spinasse, which is still there. Um, and we've been neighbors this whole time. But um, fast forward, you know, almost 15 years, and the block is now four restaurants, a wine bar, and all those other aforementioned businesses are gone. So it's like that edge of Capitol Hill is now part of the main drag. And it wasn't like great business prowess or foresight on my part. It was just coincidental that I looked on Capitol Hill because I, you know, had spent years in the Central District and went to Seattle Central. I was like, this is where I know things, you know. Um, And that was kind of why I chose Capitol Hill and watched it change, you know, while the shop changed. So let's talk a little bit about your design work. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where does the inspiration come from? I think most people that see, like, especially the poster work that I do, it's like very clearly inspired by mid-century design, mid-century architecture, and without being like a a sticky reproduction of it. But yeah, a lot of that inspiration comes from advertising posters from the 50s and 60s. And weirdly enough, the inspiration doesn't come from music posters from that era, which is kind of a different style, but just um, kind of that 1960s kind of mostly lighthearted stuff. And I kind of take that combined with, you know, the Disney movies I grew up on and somewhat high design like, um, you know, architecture and photography. And that all plays into sort of illustration and design work in general for me. Where do you have the most fun in creating your designs? Honestly, the variety of design jobs that I'm approached with, I think 
having that variety gives me joy. Like I love designing show posters. I love branding for other companies. I definitely love the personal projects that I give myself, even though that can sometimes be overwhelming when in tandem with client work and the shop. But, you know, I love taking photos, whether it be portraits or headshots for clients or photographing mid-century architecture for myself. Um, but I think if I had to choose one type of design that I love doing the most, it is show posters, just because it's kind of finding a way to combine my style and an idea that I have with the band, what they sound like, what their audience likes, what they like, and it's kind of finding that intersection of all of those things. It's like a fun challenge. What's a band that you just really enjoy making show posters for? I have been lucky enough to do a lot of work for Death Cab for Cutie, which is always fun. And everyone in the band is really great. Their management's really great. Kind of the same thing with the head and the heart. They're all great people. Their management's easy to work with. And, you know, sometimes I'm working directly with the bands. And other times, you know, they're, you know, like the Death Cab tour that just happened. They're playing two nights in Madison Square Garden or two nights at Climate Pledge. So they're not the ones sitting there writing the emails, but um, I do know the guys in the band and they're great, but their management is really great to work with, which makes the process a lot easier. So your design work has spun up to big corporate clients like Microsoft. How did that happen, you know, from your shop at Porchlight? You know, there are thousands of great designers that all do different things. Some of them are similar in some ways to me and similar to other artists. And it, when you think about, like, why is this person getting hired all the time? I think I've really benefited from people being able to connect me as, oh, the guy from Porchlight, and it makes it more memorable, not to say that that's why I get work, but that in combination with the work that I do, I think has helped a lot to grow and get me more, more emails in my inbox asking for design work. Porchlight as a place or as a brand? Both, I think, just because people can connect me, even though my design work isn't inherently connected with the shop, even though it's getting to the point where it kind of is just makes it easier for people to remember the work or remember who did what based on connecting me with a physical space or a company in some way. Well, I have to say it's so much more pleasurable to associate, you know, a, a, like a vendor with a delicious cup of coffee in a beautiful environment versus some horrible office where you have to fight parking downtown and go up into an elevator. It's true. And, you know, it's funny, I don't do... If I'm meeting face-to-face -face with anyone I'm working with, we typically won't meet at Porchlight just because if I'm not behind the counter or if I am behind the counter, I will just be running into customers and people all day long. So I will, I'll usually suggest we meet at other coffee shops, which is a little ironic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
So let's shift our conversation to books because Porchlight is also a book publisher. Mm -hmm. And what was the first book that you published? So years ago, I started a a self-inflicted project, which was photographing still standing mid-century architecture in Western Washington. So I would kind of try to do justice to the buildings, even if they were in disrepair or really well kept, and just take really nice photos of them and connect the date in which they were built. And that was kind of the project. And that led to a project called Mid-Seattle. So every year I publish one, essentially a nice magazine book of sorts. And it's usually about 45 pages and it's photos of the buildings, the date they were built. And then in the back, there's an index of addresses of where they are and any notes about them, like the architecture firm and things like that. And that was the first sort of print book that I published. And then that led to a few others. So what's the motel book that you did? That was one where I had gotten some of my family's old Kodachrome slides and just for the fun of it was scanning them and kind of retouching them to make them almost like art prints. Um, And then that led to kind of seeking out strangers, old slides, you know, at estate sales or anywhere. And, you know, I've always loved kind of the old neon signs, which are so closely associated with motels and hotels. Um, And it just led to this project of strictly photos, no context whatsoever, because I often didn't have any. They were just strangers, Kodachrome slides of motels. And that was that was the first like hundred plus page book that I published after Mid Seattle. So how did it feel going through strangers slides? Because there's a slightly a voyeuristic, right? You yeah. don't know really what you're going to find. Yeah, it, it's pretty funny. Um, you know, my hope whenever I'm going through any old thing is to find something I recognize. Um, And the truth of it is like most people weren't vacationing to Seattle and taking photos in the 50s and 60s. So I would almost never come across any motel photos from back then of Seattle or Washington. So then it just kind of, you know, you'd see people posing in front of motels or see almost parallels between how we take photos today and how people were back then where... You know, these days there's so many people taking photos of just places they're going without worrying about if they're wasting film on it. Whereas back then, you know, to find a photo of an interior of a motel was kind of rare because people weren't on vacation saying like, oh, you know what, I'm going to take a picture of this interior. It's really great at this motel. But I would come across some and it had me wondering what their thought process was in, you know, 1965 in, you know, Michigan somewhere, why they're taking photos in that hotel with no people in them. So, yeah, it kind of just gets your mind wandering of why did you take that photo or where were you going? Was this a stopover? Kind of that sort of fun stuff. Uh And you never really get the answer. Never. No. 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 I guess that makes it fun. Yeah. You can kind of make up your own story if you really want to get creative. 
And then you published Washington, Amateur Photography in the Evergreen State? Yes. Um, so that one I kind of, was kind of the same sort of idea, but every photo in the book has, you know, I had to research and try to give context to, which led to a lot of research when you might have a Kodachrome slide with someone's cursive note on the back that might say, you know, Snoqualmie or um, Cleellum or something. And then that would at least give some context to go down the rabbit hole and try to figure out. And then other people were meticulous about their notes on the slides and it would tell you everything about where the photo was taken. So I essentially made a history book with found photos um, and also a good chunk of them were my family's slides from both sides of my family, which I was lucky enough that everyone took so many photos. But I think going through and making the book Washington, it feels like going through almost a family photo album, even when it's strangers photos, because you're like, oh, I know that place. Like that's, you know, second and James or you know, that's on the way to Lake Chelan. Um, and it kind of felt more personal even when it wasn't personal. Well, what did putting all that together reveal to you about the kind of zeitgeist, maybe in the 50s and 60s, of just the average person just traveling around in Washington State? Well, I think especially back then, it was a lot more common for folks living in Seattle to have a cabin or vacation home within an hour away, as opposed to, I think as time went on, more people would have a, a vacation spot three or four hours away. But so I think a lot of the photos that I would kind of come across from back then were people who lived in Seattle traveling through the state like for a weekend and things like that, as opposed to, because again, Seattle wasn't that much of a destination other than the Seattle World's Fair. It was kind of thought of as just a, a small city or the woods. But yeah, I think it was just the documentation of things that a lot of the time, I don't think any sort of artistry was in mind when they're taking the photos. It might be someone's daughter standing in front of a sign to just later have a family slideshow of and say, oh, you know, here's where we stopped in Ocean Shores um, or Long Beach or, you know, I think the easiest photos to come across of Seattle in the 60s are from the Seattle World's Fair because it was such an event and it kind of propelled Seattle towards what it is today of a major city. Um, but yeah, I think it was a lot more fun to come across. Like I love the Seattle World's Fair and love seeing all photos of it. But I think, you know, coming across um, just different streets in Seattle or suburbs was so much more rare that it kind of gave me a nice little boost to find them and kind of guess what their reason for being in the city was in the first place. Because I think it is so much more rare to come across those and have people have any reason to document it back then. 
See you in Seattle. See you at the fair. Take a way ahead look at tomorrow. Just as if you were there. Take a rock. So tell us about your family's connection to the Seattle World's Fair. My grandfather worked there. My dad reaped the benefit of being able to ride around kind of on a on a shop cart after hours with his dad through the fairgrounds. And that, in combination with just attending the fair, led to my dad just loving the Seattle World's Fair. And eventually that, he didn't push it on me, but it eventually really rubbed off on me and kind of found its way here. But in... 1962, my, my grandfather was working as a machinist at the fair. He was like a one-man repair shop for countless things on the fair, in the fairgrounds. And so he would be working there often after hours doing repairs. So my dad, as a 11-year-old, would get to go after hours and kind of ride around the fairgrounds and... He, of course, went multiple times to the fair while it was here. And so that led to my dad kind of collecting pieces of it throughout my childhood and into adulthood. And looking back, I think it unknowingly kind of influenced my design preferences just in seeing, you know, the highbrow and the lowbrow designs of the World's Fair, and it kind of seeped in unknowingly. Everybody's talking about the big world's fair in Seattle. So, Zach, how do you feel the Seattle World's Fair changed our city? Um, I think that it kind of put us on the path towards the spotlight the city is now in, where, you know, before 1962, there weren't a lot of people planning trips to Seattle. And, you know, in all of the weird artifact collecting I've done with in relation to the Seattle World's Fair. It's like you come across pamphlets for Arizona that were saying like, <laughs> while you're here, head up to Seattle. And it's, you know, that's the Southwest telling people like, continue on your drive up and, you know, make your way to Seattle. Um, so I think it was a pretty big lure for people from a long ways away and gave them a reason to spend a week in Seattle. So Porchlight published 62 Souvenirs. Mm-hmm. Tell us about why you did that. So I was in Palm Springs at the Palm Springs Art Museum, and I had seen some photos of the architect Albert Frey, his just utensils from his work, whether it was you know, tape measure or other things. And they were just photographed really nicely and displayed really nicely in the museum. And then a year later, I just had this connection of like, oh, I would like to kind of do that, but with souvenirs from the Seattle World's Fair. And between myself and my dad, we have more than a book's worth of stuff from the fair. And so then I told him this idea and I see my parents every other week. We spend a lot of time together, but it just spent a few days kind of going out, going through the collection and kind of figuring out what we wanted to use and what I had and what he had. 
Um, and then any funny backstories that he mostly knew more of than I did for any individual items. And that was kind of the, the main incentive. And then it was just a fun reason to actually work on something together. So in the promotion for the book, you mentioned that there are official souvenirs and unofficial souvenirs. What drove that distinction? So my dad actually had copies of the catalog that they would send out to, you know, gas stations or gift shops that wanted to stock official World's Fair memorabilia, souvenirs for people to buy. Um, so seeing, we got to see like all the original prices and things like that. So those were clearly like all official. They came from essentially the merchandising office. And then there were other things where not quite the same as when you see like bootleg t-shirts outside of baseball games or concerts, but yeah, just people making art prints about the fair or people kind of just writing Century 21 and Seattle World's Fair on any piece of merchandise they could think of, which would make it unofficial um, in that sense. But the fair itself produced thousands of different trinkets and just slapped, you know, the name on everything. So it's kind of hard to decipher sometimes which were the real, quote unquote, real and which were the bootlegs. Come to the fair, says Seattle, and the invitation is accepted by thousands on opening day of the big international exposition. And then what's the strangest unofficial souvenir? Well, my favorite, which I just remember as a kid that my dad had, it's like a button that just says, don't gouge me, I'm a Seattleite. And, you know, as a kid, I have no idea what that meant. It just has a little guy holding a flag on it. Um, and then as I got older, I think I eventually asked what it was. And it was due to the fact that when the fair was announced, there was a worry that there weren't going to be enough hotels, there wasn't enough lodging for people to come. So they essentially formed a commission so that people could rent out rooms in their house, almost, you know, a back in the day Airbnb, which drove to landlords kicking out or raising rent, one or the other um, current tenants to make room for these nightly stays or weekly stays, which again, the parallel to Airbnb is pretty funny. And so there were protests and the phrase, don't gouge me, I'm a Seattleite, was kind of in reference to that. And like everyone just trying to capitalize on the fair and raising prices on all sorts of things in the surrounding area. So that kind of became my favorite weird souvenir, was that button. 74 acres of space-age fantasy, bright pavilions, and fun centers make Seattle a world's wonderland. So we asked our guests to bring an object that inspires them or they care about, and you brought this magazine on the table. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, it is the January 1961 Pacific Architect and Builder, which was essentially a trade magazine and kind of the only modern architecture publication around here back then. And my grandfather, my mom's dad, was uh, the editor there for years and then eventually became vice president. And the cover of this issue is their office, which 
was built to house their offices, their printing presses. And yeah, so my grandfather worked there for years and my mom as a little kid would stuff envelopes there. So it has a lot of family history and kind of influenced and helps inform a lot of the stuff that I do, this issue and other issues. So your current project is a book on the photographer Art Hupe. How did you first learn about art? So the reason I brought this magazine is because my introduction to the photographer Art Hupe was when my mom gave me a stack of these magazines. I was kind of looking through them and saw these photos of buildings that I recognized in the city and the photo caption that was credited to Art Hupe. And so after enough of that, I kind of started researching him and realized that he was, you know, like a true Pacific Northwesterner. And he kind of documented the growth of the Pacific Northwest in a lot of ways, whether it was intentional or unintentional. And it kind of led me to his archive, which he donated to University of Washington Special Collections. And that led me down a very, very deep rabbit hole. (laughs) But this uh, book is going to be co-published with Porchlight and Docomomo Wiwa, which is the Western Washington branch of Docomomo, which helps preserve and document uh, modern architecture in Western Washington. When was Art Hupe active as a photographer? He was active in the 50s, even through the 80s. And, you know, in the 60s, I would say it was a huge chunk of his architectural photography, um, especially the stuff that I really appreciated and recognized. But he was active just in the arts in general for most of his life. He... um, founded the Museum of Northwest Art in Laconer, which started in a house and then moved to a proper building, which is still there and growing. And he was kind of a big advocate for the arts in general, whether it was, you know, getting other artists into galleries, taking portraits of them, taking photos of their artwork, and then yeah, this whole career in architectural photography is what really led me to him. What's the title? Um, so it's called Art Hupe, Architecture and Life in the Pacific Northwest because it's primarily architectural photography, but there's a lot of street photography and other just gems from around the Pacific Northwest that needed to be a part of the collection. And so what was it about what your discovery in these magazines that led you down that rabbit hole? When I started looking through these issues of Pacific Architect and Builder, I kind of saw the similarities between his photos and Julius Schulman. And Schulman's probably the most famous architectural photographer, you know, documenting 
everyone and everything in Southern California from as far back as, you know, the 30s through the, I think 30s through early 2000s, which is a time period of growth in LA. Um, but I think people that know his work or don't know it would recognize Shulman's photos. And I kind of saw the similarities and not only the style of photography, but also just the fact that Hupi was documenting the growth of the Pacific Northwest in the way that Shulman was documenting the growth of Southern California. And yeah, I thought it was not only important, but I always liken photos of the Pacific Northwest back in the day to looking through photo albums where it's like, oh, I recognize grandma as a 12 year old here, kind of the way that you recognize a beautiful new building in 1960 and how it is today. It's like you see this and feel that familiarity. And I kind of started to feel that way with Hupi's photos. Wow. He was prolific. Yeah. His collection that just of what he donated which excludes a lot of personal photos, somewhere between, I think, 30 and 40,000 photos and negatives that he donated to the University of Washington. What are the parallels between Art Hoopy's life and yours? I think that in my deep dive into just trying to find anything about him over time, I kind of found a quote from him in the Seattle PI where there's a photo that he took of a duck and he's essentially explaining why this is such an enjoyable photo for him as opposed to all the beautiful architectural photos he'd taken. And he says that, you know, I've been doing architectural photography for so long. It's my job. And this is what I enjoy. You see the calmness and the stillness. And it's literally a, a photo of a duck on some fairly placid water. And, you know, I'm kind of a pretty firm believer in that whatever your job is, is your obligation in some sense, even if it to others is a really enjoyable, sought-after job, it's still what you have to do, what you like, but maybe don't love all the time. And I think that's totally fine. And so just reading that, it kind of showed me the similarities and that, you know, to a lot of people owning a coffee shop is like a, a dream or they want to leave their office job to start a bakery or a coffee shop. And to me, I'm like, I still really like owning a coffee shop and all that comes with it. But, you know, it's a lot of work and I've been doing it for 15 years that it's not as enjoyable as it appears it should be sometimes. And that might just be a dose of realism or, but I think in finding that quote from him, I kind of felt a little bit like a kindred spirit there. So Porchlight is small. How many square feet? 
It's about 700 square feet of physical space. And then you produce a lot of stuff, though, a lot of stuff of big quality or with a big reach from gig posters for bands touring the country. And it crosses multiple disciplines. So do you see any connection between kind of operating kind of in a small place and having a big impact? Yeah, like I think that a lot of people assume you can apply any traditional business advice to any business. And so after the first year of opening Porchlight, everyone that I had run into, it was pretty common to then say, well, when are you going to do another one? Or that, that question still comes up. And I think doing as much as I've done with a tiny footprint has actually been one of the most beneficial things I could have done. And not opening another physical location has been one of the most beneficial things because I've seen a lot of coffee shops think that they have to have this upward momentum, this forward thrust. And like, if you, if you stay where you are, it's the same as dying kind of thing. And most of those people that have applied that to coffee shops have opened multiple locations. And within a few years, they're back down to their original and probably have six figures of debt. And I think having never tried to overreach or you know, take out loans for growth might to a traditional business person seem stagnant or juvenile. And instead, I just never worked beyond my means and grew a lot from a tiny footprint, which I think has actually been way more sustainable than a lot of other businesses. Businesses rise and fall, right? Yeah. And I like even the most successful businesses, you know, swell and deflate and it's part of business and it's they're still making tons of money even when they're closing locations and it's part of it which like I don't come from any sort of traditional business background and I think in a lot of ways my background can be helpful to business it can be detrimental to business and that like your sense of community can lead to guilt and pricing or things like that but I think yeah, overall, it's like I don't want to bloat and recede. I'd rather just stay steady and grow in a natural, organic way. Must a city like Seattle grow in order to be healthy? I'm not an urban planner, um, but I think history helps give context to a lot of current issues often. I think that's one of the most beneficial parts of having an interest in history where things that might seem like, oh, the city's dying. You realize that people have said that in every decade. You know, it's like that billboard from, I don't know if it was in the 70s in Seattle where it's like, well, the last person to leave, turn out the light. You know, like this feeling of beyond being able to adapt or keep the heart of a city Um, which I've, you know, I feel that a lot of the time too. It's like a business you love closes or things are torn down that you love or you just feel like there's less community. And I think that is true. Like all, there are tons of negative things about the growth of a city, um, but it's also not that unique 
whenever something is happening to the growth of a city or, you know, a company coming or going, it's not that unique in regards to history. To what extent is your photographic work advocacy, you know, for that build environment? So I think the Art Hoopy project and my Mid-Seattle project where I'm taking the photos, it kind of shows older buildings in a new light, um, which I think is important to preservation, where someone might walk past a mid-century building in Seattle and either not notice it or think it looks like hell, and then they might see a photo of that same building the year it was built and kind of see what the intention was with the building and how beautiful it looked. And I think it can lead people down the path of preservation as opposed to tearing, you know, being okay with something being torn down. And I think it, it leads to more advocacy for preservation and see what's worth saving. And why for you is it important that these buildings, some of them at least, be preserved? I think that, you know, as much as a city is made by people, it's made by the buildings and businesses that come and go as well. And I think I'm a realist in that, you know, you can't advocate for every single building to stay where it is as far as, you know, some are in disrepair and beyond being helped and others, you know, there were a lot of single story buildings that just aren't practical anymore. And it's a bummer, but, you know, you have to kind of pick and choose, but I think it, you know, there's a balance of things in preservation and new buildings. And that's kind of how it always has been. Like people were, some people were upset by mid-century buildings replacing Victorian buildings or replacing brick buildings. And it's kind of always going to happen. It's just balancing that and keeping history for everyone in it. And to what extent is operating a place like Porchlight a form of civic engagement? I think we're getting to a point in a lot of major cities where businesses are run by absentee owners or all so many layers of management and employees. And I think it's a positive to have an owner of a business working in a physical space in a neighborhood. It gives people a sense of community. It gives, like in my case, like I feel more connected to the people in the neighborhood and what's going on in the neighborhood. And I think that helps just for quality of life and comfort. So we ask each guest to share a place that matters to them in the Pacific Northwest. Does anything come to mind for you, Zach? So many places in the Northwest are so familiar and special to me. You know, I still live half an hour from my parents and all the places we went when I was growing up. And through kind of my interest in modern architecture, there are certain places that are more special than others. And one big one for me is the Pacific Science Center. You know, I'd go there for field trips as a kid 
and always, you know, you're a kid, you love everything that's there. But I think going back as an adult, um, just the courtyard of the Pacific Science Center, I think is one of the most beautiful places in Seattle architecturally and how it integrates design and, you know, use for actual children still and field trips. Um, that place has always been pretty special to me. So if you go to ZachBulletin.com, just the opening photograph really depicts that architecture in a way that it was shocking to me because it's a very familiar place, but your photography made it very unfamiliar in a beautiful way. Well, I took that photo lying on my back in the courtyard of the Science Center looking up at the arches, and that was the result. So yeah, I don't often lie on the ground of my favorite place, but I will. So Zach, where can our guests pick up a copy of the new book once it's published? Very soon it'll be at porchlightdesignco.com for pre-orders. And then you'll definitely be able to find it at Porchlight and around town in a few different places. And there's always a good amount of design-focused goods and art prints that I've made at Porchlight Coffee and Records on Capitol Hill. But our online store has a lot more, um, and that is porchlightdesignco.com. And there you can find books, art prints, records, all sorts of fun stuff. Great. Well, thank you for being our guest today, Zach. Thank you so much. Join us next time for a conversation with Andrew Tenbrink. As landscape architect and urban designer with New York City-based James Corner Field Operations, Andrew leads design and project management of the new one-and-a-half-mile-long Seattle Central Waterfront Park and Aquarium. And when it's finished in 2025, it will connect downtown Seattle to Elliott Bay after over 100 years of separation. Andrew, who has worked on the project since 2010, will take us on a block-by-block tour spotlighting a few of his favorite design elements, be they landscapes, wayfinding, contributions from area tribes, as well as public art. And so for an insider's preview of Seattle's most significant undertaking since the 1962 Seattle World's Fair that we talked about today, be sure to join us. Thank you for joining us today. Audio engineering and sound design by Daniel Gunther with photography by Travis Lawton. Administrative support from Mary Mansour. The ambient music used throughout this episode is courtesy of Porchlight Records recording artist Cataldo, Danielle Frick, Pretty Old, Tenderfoot, and Time Pieces. Our theme music is written by Toma Nakayama and performed by Grand Hallway, with additional music by Andrew Weathers. We record on Coast Salish land at the Jack Straw Cultural Center in Seattle's University District. I'm Edward Krigsman, and you've been listening to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review or subscribe to us. And if you know of a place in the Pacific Northwest that matters to you, please tell us about it. We'd love to share your stories 